Well, if you did not know any better and you picked up the story of Esther in the Bible and you read it, you might be tempted to think that it's just sort of this old Jewish tale. And that's partly because the name of God never shows up in the entire book of Esther. And yet, when you slow down and you really look at it, as we are going to do over the next few weeks, you'll see that God's fingerprints are all over this story. You know, as we saw in the video, the story of Esther is the story of how God saved his people, the Jewish people, from extinction. And so even when God first seems absent from this story, we see that he is faithfully at work in the lives of his people. And so if you have ever struggled to understand what God's up to or where he is, or if you've ever wondered if God is doing anything at all, Esther is a book for you. So this entire book shows God's people that God is at work even when they could not see him, feel him, hear him, or understand what he was up to. That God is never even mentioned in the book, and yet the whole story is an invitation to look for his activity in their lives and in ours. So this morning, what we're going to see is that God is faithful even when you can't see it. God is faithful even when you can't see it. So if you're going through something hard, or if you're going through something that's unclear, or if you feel like God is distant and not close to you, the story of Esther encourages us to take a closer look. So we're going to be breaking up this sermon series actually by the characters in the book of Esther. And today we're going to focus on the king and we're going to be in chapter one. So let's start in chapter one. If you have Bibles, go ahead and turn there. We're going to go verse one in chapter one. And I'm just going to hit selected verses and tell you the story along the way. So it starts off, now in the days of Ahasuerus, Ahasuerus is the king's name. Can you say that with me? Ahasuerus. No, let's try it again. Ahasuerus. I think you got it. So that is the Hebrew version of this king's name. The more popular name, the Greek name, was Xerxes I. So this is King Xerxes I of Persia, also known as Ahasuerus. And so the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. So let's pause right there. The book of Esther opens setting this scene that here is the most powerful man in the world overseeing the most powerful empire in human history until that time. And it says he throws a feast. Now it goes on to say that the feast lasts for 180 days. 180 days. Look, I love a good party uh, as much as the next pastor does. Um, but, you know, by, by the end of the day, I'm, I'm pretty much ready to call it a night and go to bed. And, and by the end of the day, I mean 9 p.m. And so, so a six-month party sounds uh, like something special. The Jewish author of this story 
is starting the book by going over the top to demonstrate how powerful this king is. I mean, the bigger the party, the bigger the king's authority. And so in the ancient world, kings would throw these really long, lavish parties as a way of demonstrating their power, and they would intimidate their rivals, and they would broker political deals, and they would, uh, and they would expl- display their military might. And historically, our best understanding of this particular six-month feast was that it was meant to consolidate the power of the Persian Empire as they looked to invade their Greek neighbors to the west. And so as you read this story, you're supposed to understand that this king is so powerful and his power is even growing at that very moment. And by contrast, you have the Jews in the story. And at this moment in history, the Jewish people have been beaten down for generations in exile. Some have started to return to Jerusalem, to their homeland, but many are still scattered, like Esther and Mordecai, across this foreign empire. And so they're not in their homeland. They have no power. They have no influence. And they're under a foreign king. God's people are utterly powerless. And it looks like God is nowhere to be found. And yet everywhere you look, you see evidence of this king's power. And so as you're reading it, you're supposed to get this image that like the deck is stacked against God and his people. And that God seems like nothing compared to King Xerxes I. And so the king continues to show off his power and and no doubt aided by a little bit of wine. And he has a great idea. He says, look, I'll go get my beautiful wife. I'll have her all dressed up as the queen and I'll parade her in front of everybody here and they'll all go, oh my gosh, I didn't even know you were this powerful. And so the story says he sends his his wise men to go get the queen, but then the story tells us this in verse 12. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. So let's pause right there. So if you're a Jewish person reading this story or hearing this story, it's actually supposed to be funny, right? There's ironic humor in this story. This king, the most powerful king in history, who oversees 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia, He's so powerful, but I guess he doesn't really have power over everything, does he? Like, that's what you're supposed to see in the story. If you're Jewish, it begs the question, who's really in control here? That's what it does. So, and it hits us too, right? Like, we like to believe we have power. We like to imagine that we have control. We like to imagine that we are masters of our own destiny. And yet, even for the most powerful among us, if we're truly honest, we know that our power and our control is incredibly fragile. I mean, I don't know about you. I I regularly bump up against reminders that I'm not nearly as in control as I think I am. And that whatever power I have is incredibly fleeting. So in response to this crumbling facade of power, the king grasps for control and he asks his counselors, he says, is there anything I can do to fix this situation? And here's what they say. Verse 16, 
Then Mamukin said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt. Since they will say King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. You see what's happening right here? The most powerful king in the world is worried about how the women in his empire will respond to their husbands. So he needs to show everyone he's still in control. So how does he decide to fix the problem and show that he's still got power? He removes Queen Vashti from her position as queen, thus opening the way for a young Jewish woman named Esther to take the throne. And as the story goes, because Esther is named queen, a wicked plot to exterminate all of the Jewish people in the whole Persian empire is defeated. So in a story about the mighty, powerful Persian empire, the obvious point is that though the king thinks he's the one pulling the strings, God has power the entire time. And that God is doing something the entire time. God was active when no one could see it. That God was up to something even though no one was paying attention to God. God had something he was doing. That God remained faithful even at the darkest moments of the story of the Jewish people. Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper once famously said, there is not one square inch of the entire creation about which Jesus does not cry out, this is mine. What we see in Esther is that we may not recognize it in the moment, but when we look back, we can see how God was in it. And look, that that doesn't mean that everything always works out the way we want it to. It doesn't mean there's always a fairy tale ending. It means that even when we feel like we're powerless and we've lost control, that God is with us, that he is faithful, that he is doing something in us that will get us through those moments. I remember a couple of jobs ago, I was working at this Presbyterian church in Dallas, and my job was, uh, was young adult ministry. And in particular, we really struggled to connect with like young, young adults, single young adults, right out of college, young professionals. Um, and, and in fact, we had, we had like none in our church. And, uh, and, I, and I had no idea what to do. I tried all these things. They never worked. And then one day, a church member reached out to me and said, hey, um, my son just graduated from college. He's back in town. Would you have lunch with him? And my experience of years of ministry is uh, no young recent college grad whose parents set them up on a blind date with a pastor wants to be there. (laughs) And so I show up to this lunch, and it goes about as awkwardly as you might imagine it does. Uh, Confirmed right away, he had no desire to have lunch with a pastor. Um, And so we had this really uncomfortable short lunch. And then we parted ways, and I literally thought, I'll never see that guy ever again, because that's normally what happens in these situations. And so a year and a half later, 
year and a half later, uh, our, our ministry team decides, you know what, we need to start this really awesome new, like, middle-of-the-week worship service for young adults, and that will really, like, that will be the thing that draws in people. And so we start it, and, like, no one comes. It's, it's, it's an incredible, spectacular failure. I mean, after, like, three weeks, we have more staff coming than we have young adults, and we didn't even have that many staff coming. And so I really wanted to just kill it. But then my boss said, no, you need to keep it going for at least, you know, the end of the semester. And so we kept going. And after a few months, it, it came to an end. And on the very last night, we're having the last one and literally no young adults come. And so we're about to shut the door and just shut it down for the night and just completely knock off this ministry. And in the door walks this man who I had lunch with 18 months before. And I was so embarrassed. I was like, there's, there's no one here. Like, I, you don't want somebody to walk in on ministry like that. And so he comes in and he says, actually, I just came to find you um, because I recently decided to recommit my life to Jesus and I really want to get involved at church. And I remembered our lunch for a year and a half ago. And so, like, to me, that in and of itself is a good news story. But it gets better. Because he says, I also have a bunch of people like me, like my peers, uh, who grew up with me around here, and none of them are going to church, and I would love to see them start following Jesus. And so we came up with a plan. At least he came up with a plan, and I said yes to it. Uh, and a few months later, on Tuesday nights, at a pub in uptown Dallas, we had over 50 young adults having Bible study together, and it lasted for years. And these young adults came to know Jesus and they came to be a part of churches and they came to be a part of missions. It was just an amazing thing, right? So I want you to see, I, I invested so much of my time into all of these creative programs and strategies that I thought I knew how to do. And I thought I had so much power and control over ministry, over what God would do in these people's lives. And it was always failing. It never worked. I, I had moments where I was like, I don't even know if I'm supposed to be doing this because this is so, so awful. And then God does something that was completely unexpected. And as I look back on it now, I'm like, God was faithful throughout the whole time, through all the ups and the downs. God was doing something that I didn't even see coming. In fact, something that I completely wrote off, right? God was faithful to what he was doing in the midst of a really weird, long situation where I doubted, was God even present? God was at work even though I couldn't see him. God is faithful even when you can't see it. And to say God is faithful when we can't see him is to believe that he's in control even when we're not. And to say God is faithful even when we can't say him, see him is to say that he has power even when we don't. Theologian R.C. Sproul said, most Christians salute the sovereignty of God, but believe in the sovereignty of man. He's saying that we like to say that God has power over our lives, but we like to live as if we have power over our lives. But when we depend on God's faithfulness, we trust that his power is sufficient even when our power and control fails us and lets us down. When you're not in control, he is. 
When you're not in control, he is. And we are called to lean on God even in those moments when we can't feel him or hear him or see him or understand what he's doing. And I know there are some of us that God feels distant from. There are some of us where life has thrown you a curveball or two and you're wondering, God, what are you doing? God, where are you? What are you up to? But I want you to hear this. Believing that God is faithful when we can't see him is not about over-spiritualizing everything. It's not about minimizing the pain or the suffering. It's not believing that you have to find the good in everything. It's about living in dependence on Jesus and acknowledging our weakness. It's about believing that no matter how bad things get, the way out is with Jesus rather than on our own. No matter how bad things get, the way out is with Jesus. So when we look at the king, we see that power is often a weakness. And that's okay. It's okay if you have weakness. It's okay if you struggle. It's okay if you doubt. It's okay if you've made mistakes. One of the earliest Jesus followers, a man named Paul, proclaimed, Jesus said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. And that is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness and insults in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The good news is that when you feel weak and powerless, when you feel out of control, he doesn't and he's not. I'm going to say that again. The good news is that even when you feel weak and powerless and out of control, he isn't and he is not. And that's what we need to place our faith in. In the Christ who dies on the cross to redeem our brokenness and our worst moments and to draw us into what he's doing in our lives and in the world. Each week, In this series on Esther, we want to give you a tangible chance to respond together as a church, to engage with what God is bringing up in your heart and your mind and your soul as we have these uh, conversations. And so uh, every week we're going to encourage you uh, after the service to go out into the great room. We've got this big white table. You might have seen it on the way in. And take a Sharpie and just jot down the response to a question. And so today's question is really simple. What's one place where you want to see God work in your life? What's one place? Think through an example, a part of your life, a circumstance, a relationship, some other thing where you've maybe not been expecting God to show up. Maybe you've not been looking for God, but you want to name that he's faithful and he's there. What's one place where you want to see God work in your life? And as we write these answers on the table over the course of the next few weeks, what we'll see is sort of this spiritual record of what he's doing in our souls. I want to close uh, with a quote from that spiritual classic, Moneyball. 
Moneyball is a book about a professional baseball uh, management philosophy, if you're not familiar. But author Michael Lewis says this, what happens when we acknowledge the sovereignty and power of God without trusting in his goodness and his faithfulness? A pitcher who saw God's power behind his extremely unlikely rise to the big leagues wondered if at any difficulty he encountered there, God might be taking his ability away. It might not be baseball, it might be some other area of your life. What he's saying is it's easy to assume that God is faithful to us when things are going well. But maybe we need to name it and to remind ourselves of it and to be discipled into it so that when things aren't going so well, we don't believe at best that God's not there and at worst that he's punishing us for something but instead to know that he is faithful no matter what we go through because he's given us his son. And the way out is not on our own strength. The way out is with Jesus. I'd like to invite the band to come back up as they lead us in our closing song and and to leave you just thinking about what's that place in your life where you need to name that God is faithful, where you need to name that God is at work even when you're tempted to believe that he's not that you're going through something hard. We worship a God who is faithful, who even when we feel out of control, he is not. Even when we feel like we have no power, he does. Let's worship him and lean on him.